If you would, remain standing and take your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 18. Uh, We are continuing this exposition of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, and I think this morning will be part three of this series. So let's read the text. I want to read from verse 18 all the way down through verse 30. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us, and then I'll read from Scripture. Now, Father, we come and ask for enlightenment, understanding. Lord, we pray that you'd give us spiritual eyes to see. Lord, give us spiritual ears. Help us to perceive. Help us to understand. Help us to, Lord, grasp and accept what your word teaches about this question of everlasting life. Help us to understand Jesus' answer. Lord, help us to embrace it. Lord, help us to understand the concept of what it is to be, well, totally committed in all of our hearts, what that looks like. So, Lord, give us insight, give us wisdom, And give us, O Lord, the humility needed to sit at the feet of Scripture and learn, Lord, of your ways. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this, or when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you will and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they heard it and then... Who can be saved? And But he said, these things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning's message focuses upon the, uh, the way that the rich young ruler approached Jesus, recognizing him as the good teacher, and then Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler. And we're not going to go outside of that. We're going to focus this morning upon what goodness is and particularly God's goodness. In fact, the title that I played around with and the one that rolled around in my head and heart all week was the greatness of God's goodness. 
the greatness of God's goodness. That God is the sum of all that is good. And now we know this because of the way the rich young ruler approached Jesus. Now, let me explain that. It was not customary for a disciple to approach a rabbi and call the rabbi good. That was not custom. The rich young ruler at this point is breaking custom and he's a recognizing, he's identifying, he's expressing his own personal thoughts about Jesus as being good, the good teacher. Now, how does that tie into the greatness of God's goodness? Well, we know the rich young ruler is not converted. He's not regenerated. He, he doesn't possess the Holy Spirit in any saving manner whatsoever. And yet he has this modicum, this measure of goodness in his mind, in his heart. That there is a measure of goodness that is in the earth. Because God is good. The very fact that God is the sum of all goodness and the greatness of all goodness, that the earth possesses a basic understanding of that which is good. Now, let's just take a moment before I just get into uh, defining it. I, I want to illustrate it. And of course, in the illustration, emphasize the definition. Obviously, the rich young ruler is coming to Jesus because he thinks he can do something for him. He thinks he can help him. And that in and of itself is a, well, a measure of goodness when, when good can be accomplished, when there is a benefit, it's called good. There, he's expecting that Jesus will help him. And of course, Jesus does. It's just not the help that he thought he was gonna get. But when we go all the way back to the beginning of time, the uh, opening up of scripture, if you will, to Genesis, and, and we see that what does God do to display his goodness? How does God display his goodness without declaring his goodness? Well, all that he created, he called what? Good. Now, what's the implication of that? That the one, if what he created is superb, good, wholesome, orderly, beautiful, because that's encompassed in there, delightful, pleasant, then the one who created it must be the sum of all of that. Now, when you, brothers and sisters, we apply this same rule when we might look at a, a, um, a magnificent cathedral or a castle or a, a, a modern uh, work of architecture that just staggers the mind and we think, wow, who engineered this? Who drew this? Because we know that the building did not design itself. Someone 
drew the plans. Someone drew what it was going to look like and how we're going to accomplish it and all of these various things. And, and we honor those people. We recognize that they are a measure above, if you will, others in their skill sets and capabilities, in their organization, in their structure, how they see things. Now, beloved, it all started with God way back in creation. It should not surprise any of us that that's the case because we are made in the image of God. It's not just that God made the earth and called it good. We, man, essentially knew by being put in the garden that it was good. That it was pleasing to the eye. That it was beneficial. That it met their needs. That it was a paradise. And that's what it was called. The idea of paradise flows, uh, the, the happiness seems to f kind of flow out of this idea of paradise, doesn't it? Things that you call a paradise are things that you say will make me happy. That's my paradise. Or what is your paradise? Oh, this is my paradise. And yet, these are things that lighten the heart. They put smiles on our face. They seem to put a pep in our step. They seem to encourage us. And the garden was every bit of that to Adam and Eve. They was lacking nothing. They needed nothing. They had all they needed. There was all kinds of motivation around them to know and to see and to embrace and to be encouraged by God's goodness to them. Well, how did God express his goodness in other ways? Well, what happened after the fall? How did God express his goodness? By establishing a covenant of grace. By meeting a need. The need of redemption. By God giving them a promise and a vision of a future redeemer that would come and, well, put to death, if you will, the Satan and his works, uh, destroy Satan and his works. That God was going to take care and remedy their problem. That's a help. That's a good thing. That's part of the definition of being good, being helpful, being useful. And we see this all through scripture. I'm going to only highlight a couple of them. Because I think if you want to study this further, it's an easy study. It's not a hard study. It's something that you can look up. It's something that you can put your concordance to work at and begin to develop a systematic, if you will, of, of what goodness is and how it flows from God in his, of his essence, and we'll talk about that in a minute, into the very practical things. So God remedied the problem that man had from the beginning when he rebelled against God and sinned against God and he, he fell from his original innocence and he became guilty. God showed forth his goodness in providing for him salvation. There were other ways and I'm only going to mention a few more because I think, I hope you're getting understanding and 
grasping what at least I'm trying to promote from the very beginning of Scripture. Well, God even came in goodness and, you know, corrected Cain in his original hard-heartedness. Cain wasn't a believer. We know this because 1 John tells us that he did not have faith. And his lack of faith was why God rejected his worship and rejected his sacrifice. It had nothing to do with favoritism on God's part. John clearly teaches us that faith is instrumental in being accepted by God. Even when we offer up, well, worship, I don't think anyone here would say that their worship is stellar, perfect, wholehearted. I mean, we attempt it, we try it, we shoot for it, we want it, we desire it, but do we perform it? I think we all have to say no. We're riddled with distractions, with weaknesses, with anxieties, with doubts. And all those things come into play at various times in various moments. And one millisecond of doubt is a sin, beloved. And yet God comes to Cain and he sets forth his goodness to that community there by saying, listen, Cain, if you do well, won't your countenance be lifted up? I mean, he corrects him. He is leading him in, in repentance. Lord, Cain, Cain, listen, repent of your sins and you will be received. Your repentance will be accepted. Oh, but Cain could not do that. And therefore, he continued to harden his heart and he continued to rebel against God until he spiraled to such a condition that he lashed out and murdered his own brother. And now God displays his goodness again by exiling Cain from the church. Banishing him to the land of Nod. Nod means wandering. A place of restlessness, emptiness, disorder, chaos. You see the picture though, don't you? In God's goodness, he ministered to the, well, the faith, the community of faith, he ministered to the church and he demonstrated his goodness to them by demonstrating his hate for murder. For the sin of murder in order to protect the innocent, God runs Cain and those who wanted to be with him out of that community. And he's banished into this land called wandering, a vagabond, if you will. You say, well, that's not good. It was good because, number one, God can do nothing that's not good and everything God does is good, so we have to find the good in it. Shaping our understanding, shaping our definition, shaping our own hearts and minds to the things of God because God is the standard of goodness and everything else. It is good to protect the innocent, something that our officials need to learn. It's good to protect those who can't protect themselves. It's good to protect the innocent. It's good to protect the righteous from the wicked, from the rebel. 
That's a good thing. And believe me, beloved, you want protection. Amen? So how does the rich young ruler, as he comes to even ask, or as he comes to recognize that Jesus is the good teacher, we see that the reason he can do this and the reason that anyone can have any standard of good, well, which presupposes there's evil or bad, is because God is great in his goodness. And that's been displayed all over the whole world. There are some scriptures that we can look at that may help us. And I do want to address the um, common conversation that happens around Reformed tables and benches and living rooms and kitchens and barbecue grills or however, whatever, about, well, goodness and who can be good and what is good and is anybody good? I do want to get there. Because I think we have to understand it, particularly in light of our confession, we have to look to Scripture. Amen. We have to look to Scripture. What does the Scripture say? How does the Scripture use this language? How does the Scripture use the word good? If you take and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Again, I want you to zero in on and focus on the, the way that Jesus is using the term good. In verse 45, he says, so that, well, he backs up and he talks about um, verse 43. Let's read that. He says, but you have heard that it is said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So that's the topic, that's the subject, hate. He's addressing this dichotomy, if you will. You've heard these things, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. So even here in our Jesus, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is identifying those who are good and those who are evil. That's important. I'm not going to go into, and the purpose of this lesson is not to go into the concepts and understanding and philosophy and biblical nature of love. That's important. But I hope you can see in the context how Jesus is using the word good. He's using it to compare types of people. There are good people and then there are evil people. Let's continue. Luke, look at Matthew 12. Matthew 12 and verse 3. Let's see here. I have lost. 
lost. Matthew 12, verse 35, I thought. Let's go to Luke 6, 45. It's a parallel passage. Now, in this section of Scripture, our Lord Jesus is talking about good and bad. Good fruit, bad fruit, good trees, bad trees, and of course, a good man. Uh, look at verse 43, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure of his uh, brings forth evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Let's look at another passage of scripture, Luke chapter 23. That is, there's no problem in a general way for Jesus to talk about those who are good and doing good things. It's general. That is, we're not talking about the quintessential essence of God in goodness. We're talking about just general beneficence and usefulness. General ways in which there are things that are done that are useful, orderly, beautiful, that kind of thing. Luke chapter 25, or Luke 23, I'm sorry. Look at verse 50. This is Jesus is buried and a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. So the scriptures identify this person, Joseph, named Joseph as good and righteous. Now, it cannot mean in essence or essentially are by nature, so to speak. Why? Because even us here this morning, beloved, are what? We are still tainted by our what? Sin. So what is the scriptures referring to? That this man was a good man. That in his dealings with others, in, his, in the way he carried himself, in his business relationships, and all that he is, he was a good man. He was a righteous man. It's just his outward identification of this man. Now, was he, a, was he a believer? I would say so. But he wasn't pure. He wasn't, in essence, as good like God is good. Okay? The same could be said, let me just give you a few more of these things. It's same said about Cornelius in Acts. And he was a good man. There are scriptures that speak and use this word good in its common sense, in its usefulness, beloved, in that it's what? Then we use it, this, we use it ourselves when we find someone uh, that we like, that's um, what we would call upstanding, that we would call, you know, uh, outward integrity. We call them what? We call them good people. Is that unbiblical? I would say not. 
I would say that it's not a declaration of their eternal destiny. It's only a declaration of their outward usefulness and, and if you will, uh, life and their character outwardly. We're not making a judgment of their heart. We're not making a judgment of their, e- well, of their eternity. We're only identifying them in a very social way. And it's fine to do so. Because I think that's exactly what was happening here in those scriptures that I just read to you. Jesus called in the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus had no problem calling the Samaritan who come to the aid of someone that wasn't his own countryman. Someone that possibly was raised to be prejudiced against him. But Jesus calls him what? The good Samaritan. And I don't think there's a problem. Jesus didn't have a problem, even though it was a story, even though it was a parable, yet it still has validity to it. There's reality to it. It is not wrong to recognize people that are uh, upright, outwardly, useful. I, I, wanna, I, keep, I, I don't want to, you know, when talking about because the word doesn't mean efficient. I mean, you know, efficient, orderly, um, uh, beneficial, beautiful, and God is all those things. I mean, he's the standard of all those things. When we talk about efficiency, God is efficient. We talk about beautiful. God is not only beautiful. Now, he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have parts. He doesn't have hands and feet and a face. It's not a beauty that you would identify on the front of the cover of a magazine or a selfie. It's a beauty that is displayed in his works. And what he does and who he helps and how he helps and, and abundantly helps. What does James tell us in James chapter 1 about the liberality of God in bestowing wisdom on those who pray and ask for it? That God gives liberally to those who ask for wisdom. Isn't that great? He's not stingy. And I think there's, again, what is that displaying? Well, God's goodness. God's not just giving you what you need. He's giving you more than what you need when you ask. What does Paul pray for in Ephesians chapter 3? Paul, how does Paul reckon with God? He said, the one who is able to do far more abundantly than we're even asking him for. That God is, well, a liberal giver. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. I mean, I know I hadn't even gotten into the the background of the, <laughs> the way the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, but I hope that you find this helpful. Look at um, verse 7 of Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. And what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And that's of what we're talking about here. Now, let's look at Romans 3, a text of scripture that may have been rolling around in your minds as we were talking about these things because it is very difficult for some reformed Christians to call anyone good outside of God. And, and that's, that's their prerogative in one sense to do so, but to say that scripture only supports that, I think, well, I think it can be challenged. And I think we are challenging it to some degree. Because Romans 3 is often well cited in this. But look at the context of the passage. Paul's intent of this text is not to, he's not addressing what goodness is, Right? That's not his intent. He's not setting forth a definition or a, a theology of goodness. What he is intending to do is to set forth that the whole world, in, in, when it comes to salvation, is not good. That they've all fallen. And what Paul is doing, before I read the text, let me set the stage. What Paul is doing is he's highlighting what happened at the fall of the, 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 uh, the breaking of the covenant of works. For at the covenant of works, when Adam sinned and the whole human race fell in Adam, they fell. That's why we call it the fall. What did they fall from? They fell from innocence. They fell from integrity. They fell from wholesome goodness that was derived from themselves. And this is what Paul is saying. And he says, who does that affect? Because, well, you got to remember, there was, a, there was a faction between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews, the Hebrews definitely thought, hey, we're superior they are pagans, they're ungodly, they're unbelievers, they're, they are unclean, all of these things. We are righteous, we're God's children, we're God's favor. He chose us, we're the chosen ones. And they used that to a very evil, in a very evil way and for evil purposes. And Paul is correcting that. He says, listen, let me correct this right now for the whole world has been well, condemned in Adam. Now let's look, read that. Verse nine, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have all become useless. Look at the, def look, 
There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. And their tongues they keep deceiving. Poison of asp is under their lips. Whose whole, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their hearts. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's absolutely true. Because that was the result of the fall. But yet, even in the fall, you couldn't deny the world that God made and the world that God governs. And the witness of God's goodness being displayed here and there, pits and pieces and and all of these things and and the common understanding. That's why we call natural law, natural law. That is his moral law, his standard of goodness, the will of God as it relates to God and man. There's no contradiction here, beloved. When it comes to salvation, there's nothing good in us that would merit salvation. There's no, there, it, there, there's no goodness in us to muster up enough good works to earn our salvation back. That's what Paul is saying. We're completely incapable of saving ourselves. Now look, this is what he says over here in Romans 5. Turn there with me. Therefore, just as the verse 12, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned through Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offensive Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Brothers and sisters, verse 17, for if by the transgression of one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's making the connection that Jesus Christ as the last Adam, the head of the covenant of grace, And my point being, beloved, when we come to salvation, when it comes to eternal life, there is none good. And now we have the question of the rich young ruler. What does the rich young ruler come asking Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But he doesn't just say that, does he? What does he say? He says, good teacher. Breaking tradition, the rich young ruler recognizes that Jesus is different. Now, not in the main way, not in the needed way or the necessary way, but he recognizes that Jesus is not like the other rabbis. So much so that he comes and calls Jesus good. And Jesus in his, well, infinite wisdom, if you will, turns that around to the rich young ruler by making the statement, well, why do you call me good 
when only God is good alone. So what's the... So, so let's look at why the rich young ruler would come and call Jesus good. Why would he break tradition? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why. And they all have to do, they all are related to the understanding the word good. What would be some of the things that Jesus might have been known for that the rich young ruler either witnessed himself or heard secondhand? Well, his teaching. Jesus was known for teaching powerfully. He was known for teaching good things. So like I just mentioned, right? The, well, the parable of the good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. Unfolding wisdom, giving moral guidance, going back to Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7, talking about uh, uh, how to mortify sin. If your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. I mean, what does the text tell us? If we go back to Matthew chapter 7, or at the beginning of chapter 8, notice... Or look at at the end of chapter 7 in verse 28. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus' teaching set himself apart. This heavenly divine wisdom being displayed in his preaching, in his teaching. That's one way. Well, what was the second way? A second way was Jesus being known for his acts of mercy. His good works. Now, this is, this is something that the rich young ruler would have applauded because he believed in, well, external works. But there was something more to it than that. I mean, Jesus, what did he go around and do? He healed the sick. He gave the blind sight. He gave the lame the ability to walk. He gave the leper health, healthy skin, vitality. He wanted, again, the woman with the issue of blood. Blind Bartimaeus is next in Luke 18. Son of David, have mercy on me. He received the children. I mean, Jesus was known. Jesus was known for his acts of mercy and compassion. What's a third what's a third thing he was known for? His opposition to evil. Jesus had no problem confronting the evil of his day. He had no issue with confronting these bad teachers who were producing bad fruit. Jesus had no problems making a cat of nine tails and walking into the temple and cleansing it. And running out the money changers and declaring that his father's house is a house of worship and prayer. How they had desecrated. He was full of the 
passion and the, the, the energy of God's glory. It moved him and he opposed evil. That's good. That's a good thing. So maybe it's one of these things, maybe it's a combination of these things, but the fame of Jesus Christ had obviously either reached the eyes or the ears of this rich young ruler, and now he comes to Jesus, and he is breaking tradition, and he is setting Jesus up on a higher pedestal and saying, good teacher, I know you can help me. So... And of course, we know what he asked because the rich young ruler lacked the witness and the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He lacked assurance. His good works weren't enough to seal that confidence and assurance that, well, he needed when confronted with the truth, just like it will never be good enough for you, as I pointed out last week. That, that confidence and that, that solid assurance comes from the very witness of the Holy Spirit in your spirit with the things of God, that you are the sons of God. He lacked it. He didn't have that. And so now he's driven to Jesus. He's the best of the rabbis. He's a head and shoulders above the rest. He's good. He's beneficial. He's the best that I know of, he can help me. He can answer, he can tell me what I lack. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, because he is full of compassion, because Jesus does hate evil, and because Jesus is a teacher of the truth, Jesus takes what the rich young ruler gives him, and he uses it in order to bring the rich young ruler out of his arrogance and his, well, his ignorance. That's the word I wanted to use, his ignorance. The rich young ruler didn't know. He had plenty of Old Testament scripture that talked about God's compassion, God's mercy, there's plenty of Old Testament scripture. There's plenty of Psalms that he would have heard recited almost every Sabbath day about the goodness of God. We read one this morning, Psalm 100. God is good. And his, lover, his loving kindness is everlasting. He would have heard these over and over and over and he still missed it. Because he would steeped in this system of legalism, in this system of what must I do to have eternal life? What thing do I lack? I must earn and work my own way to heaven. I must prove myself worthy of everlasting life. And he couldn't break through those presuppositions that he had been raised with. And even though he heard these scriptures over and over and over, he heard that God doesn't take delight in sacrifices, but an inward contrite heart, Psalm 51. He boom, missed it, just bounced off of him because presuppositions die hard. Presuppositions the matter. And if you have the wrong ones, they can keep you from hearing what you need to hear. 
And this is what drives him to Jesus. He can fix this. He seems to be a, above the other teachers. He seems to be good and helpful. He can help me. And therefore, he had no problem breaking that tradition and saying, good teacher. And Jesus, what does he do? Why do you call me good? Jesus knows, I mean, obviously Jesus as God knows everything, he knows the heart of men. John tells us that because Jesus knew the heart of those who followed him for what they could get from him, he would not commit himself to them because he knew their hearts. So what is he doing? He is trying to draw out from the rich young ruler, break loose from these legalistic presuppositions, begin to think beyond these things. Why do you really call me good? You would think it would put the rich young ruler on his heels a little bit. Maybe it did. We don't know. He's probably attentive at this point. Jesus is speaking. He's the good teacher. Now, Jesus doesn't give him room that we know of to answer the question. Jesus begins to go into why he needs to consider these things. Because what does he say? No one is good except God alone. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is trying to help the rich young ruler who he is really engaging here. Do you believe I'm God in the flesh? Do you believe I'm the promised Messiah? Do you believe I'm David's son? The root of Jesse? The proto-evangelicum in Genesis 3.15? I mean, you go recite all of these Old Testament prophecies and what Jesus is saying is, why do you call me good? Because what does the scripture say? The scriptures say that there's only one that is good, God alone. Now that's, that, that's include, what Jesus is saying is, listen, when what we're talking about here, no one is good except God in his essence, the pinnacle Supreme, ultimate, total. Only God fits the essence of goodness. Only God in his nature and all that he does. Do you not see, why are you calling me good when God is the only one good? And of course, it had been proper to do so. Jesus could be throwing back up into his face All of these Old Testament scriptures that he would have heard read in the synagogue. Isaiah 7, 9. Jesus is called mighty God, holy one. And now Jesus is moving to to sort of remedy, if you will. This is what a compassionate teacher does. Jesus is moving to remedy this ignorance of the rich young ruler. He wants to know how to be saved. I'm going to teach him. I'm going to show him the way. 
But I'm going to show him a way that he won't forget. I'm going to destroy these presuppositions that he has about works and the role of good works and the role of law-keeping. And that's where Jesus begins to get into, if you will, the commandments. Well, you know the commandments. He, then he begins to list off a few of the commandments from the second table of the law. And, he's, and what did the rich young ruler reply in verse 21? All these things I've kept from my youth. Now, I'm sure the, that answer didn't surprise Jesus. That's what he was raised to believe. That's what the Pharisees had done. They had truncated and perverted and, 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 and misrepresented the mercies and the goodness and the, well, the gospel of Scripture, the gospel, the, the clarion call for the sinner to come to Christ. They had perverted that way. That's why Jesus said when you travel land and sea to go and well, make a disciple of yourselves. You've made them twice the son of hell as you. When you're done with them, they're really messed up. Beloved, let's, let's make some applications and we'll be through. We'll pick it back up next week. Why is this valuable to go through this, this way for us this morning? Well, first of all, we need to have a solid understanding and grasp upon how the Bible uses the word good. But when it comes to salvation, we need to know who to compare ourselves with. We don't compare ourselves with one another. We don't compare ourselves to religious dogma. We don't compare ourselves to church standards, so to speak. When we have the question about salvation, we must, well, we must go to God. And we must look at him. For in the very beginning, we were made upright and with integrity, blameless before God. And the only way that we do sort of in one way come back to that is in Christ. Christ is the last Adam. He's the one who's offered up himself. He's the one who's walking before the Father in sinless integrity. He's the one that's doing good works, really. He's the one that is performing outward goodness. And beloved, here's what the, here's what the rich young ruler thought. He thought, I can, I can say, yes, I've done these things outwardly. I've never physically committed adultery. I've never physically murdered anyone. I've never physically robbed anyone, taken what's not mine. But see, he didn't understand the heart. He didn't understand the essence of the law. He didn't understand the essence of law keeping. He didn't understand that the law demands full, well, obedience of the heart. Now, we're going to talk about law and grace in, a, in a, a future sermon here in this series. He didn't understand the, 
the need to not only conform outwardly, but inwardly about these things. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. That's why Jesus went through that series of, well, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he's correcting this false teaching of the Pharisees. If you've looked at a woman and lusted after her, you've committed adultery. If you've hated your brother, you've committed murder. Well, the, the rich young ruler didn't have that understanding because he would have never been able to stand before Jesus and say, I've done all of this since my youth. What youth has not lusted over the opposite sex? What youth has not been angry with a parent, with a sibling? What youth is, you know, I mean, I I remember, and this is so sad. I wish I could go back and change it, but I think I remember saying something like when I was, I was so mad, I was angry, and I said, oh, I wish you were dead when I was little. Well, I was taught outwardly never to say that again. It was a painful lesson. But these are the things we sin. This is, this is what we do. We sin. And the rich young ruler, he was ignorant of himself. He was ignorant of the way God viewed him. And he was ignorant of his view of God. And brothers and sisters, you can't have salvation when you're ignorant about your sins. You can't have salvation if you don't know who God is and you don't know his son. And that's why the rich young ruler went away sad because Jesus, well, exposes his idolatry. And we don't talk about that. But beloved, listen to me. There is this, and when it comes to salvation, the essence of God is good and there's nothing like him. And the only reason we know what good is in our lifestyles and in this world is because that's how great God's goodness is. It flows in extent, even in a common way, down to the very basic level of where we live. I hope you found this lesson helpful. And I hope you understand, brothers and sisters, you cannot keep the law and have everlasting life because you can't do it perfectly. The law demands total obedience, inwardly and outwardly, total, without mistake. And we can't perform that. So I'll teach you in the next coming sermons what it is, what use the gospel plays and what role the law plays in the gospel. Let's pray. Now, Father, bless your name. Your goodness is as high as heaven. It's as broad as the universe. It's as deep, Lord, as the deepest ocean. It's mighty. Lord, help us to drink from this fountain. Help us to just give us a glimpse of this goodness and let it be a great motivator for us to do good. Not because, oh Lord, we match your goodness. Well, forgive us, Lord, if we sin by thinking such things. 
but Lord, that we might be the restored image of God in Christ. That we would, well, Lord, do good to you in our worship and outward service and obedience. And Lord, we do good to one another. And we would even recognize goodness in other places, Lord, when we see it. Let us be like Jesus, Lord. Let us teach the truth. Let us be strong in outward acts of mercy and let us oppose evil. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.